Let's pray. Father, we sang of and now speak of praying your sovereign reign over us, and we say thank you for it. You are good. You are God. You do indeed stoop down to meet us. You come near, you inhabit the small places of our world, you even dwell within us by your Spirit. But you are also high and exalted, mighty and omnipotent, God. And without that, the former is meaningless. You are God who draws near. You are God Almighty King who stoops to be with us as a friend, as a companion. We bless your name for that. And Lord, we ask you now to to press a little more deeply into our hearts, those of us who are your people, to press into us some greater, some expanded, some wider, some deeper understanding of this and appreciation of it and trust of it. A rest in it. We talked about last week what you said to us through Paul in Romans 15 and applies again to this week that you are the God of hope and he asked you, the God of hope, to make your people to be filled with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would make them to abound in hope. You are God. Would you make us to abound in hope? Would you fill us with joy and peace in believing? Believing you, believing your word, believing the gospel, believing in your Son. Thank you for giving these truths to us and Lord, grow in us belief and use the passage today towards that end. Widen our understanding of you. Deepen our trust of you. This would be what would build your church and and as we sang, would be for our good and for your glory. So carry out this purpose in us, Lord, here. But for those here who don't know you, and surely there are some, young or old, awaken them, please. Oh Lord, graciously, Would you awaken people who sit day in, day out, week after week, and listen to you talking to them and are blind and deaf to it? Please awaken and save for their good. Save by your grace for your glory. Build us who are your people then and make us a holy people, a kingdom, a royal nation, holy in your sight a testimony to the world of who you are. Build your people, Lord, we pray. Honor the name of Jesus. Make your word clear now. 
Help me with the parts that I don't understand. Help me with the parts that aren't clear in my own mind, to speak them clearly. Make straight what I say, Lord, and make it true, true to your word and true to you. Thank you for your presence. Build your church, we pray. We ask you for Jesus' sake. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the last half of 2 Samuel chapter 16, where we find again that David is on the run from an evil king who seeks his life. Not Saul this time, but his own son Absalom, who is a second Saul of sorts. He is another model in the long line of rulers who oppose God's kingdom. In fact, Saul was not the first, and Absalom is not the last. It's a long, never-ending line of rulers who seek to oppose the king and his kingdom. In every age, God's king will find opposition in every place until finally his kingdom comes in all fullness. And until then, enemies abound. And here in 2 Samuel, now, the opposition is manifest in this man named Absalom, son of David. He had overthrown David, he, he'd organized a, a revolt, he'd overthrown David, forced David to flee out of Jerusalem, as we saw in chapter 15. He left, and last week in chapter 16, we saw David, uh, as he's journeying out towards the wilderness, subjected to, to scathing verbal attack, criticism and insult and, and rebuke, shameful speech, and David perseveres in righteousness meekly under that. So we saw last week that was David. That's what's required of us. As we elaborated, it's what we really want, in fact, because it, that's what would make for sweet human relationships. To be able to meekly persevere with other people righteously when they accuse you, when they insult you, that would make for sweet relationships. It's what we want. And thankfully, it's what we can have because we have the same resource that David drew from, the same great deep well of the goodness of God. He drew from that, trusting that the Lord had brought this, the Lord was at work in it. Same thing's available for us, Christian. This goodness of God, this assurance of God in everything that we face, including insult. So we need to walk meekly through life, and we can as we turn our eyes onto God. That was last week, and this week now, in the middle of chapter 16, the scene changes from David and his group of men who are fleeing out of the city with their families, Switches from them back into Jerusalem, kind of rewinds a little bit, and switches us back to Absalom when he, with, with his friends, they arrive in the city and meet Hushai, who was a counselor of David's that David sent back to be of assistance to him. So Absalom is arriving, and he's going to take some steps to secure this newly grasped kingdom. What are they going to do? What are they going to do to break David's hold on the land and to, to overthrow him and, and hopefully finally kill him? What are they going to do? That's what this passage puts before us. And what they do, what, what we see developed here, is threatening, serious, and yet under the sovereignty of God. So what we're going to look at should, for us who, who read it with kind of a bird's eye view, should be reassuring. Because we can see here is great opposition, here is great threat, and all of it is going on here beneath the God who reigns over it. 
And it should communicate to, to you a, a real, a solid ground for rest. You have received and are receiving a kingdom that in fact cannot be shaken. So we're going to see in the passage today. I'm going to read the whole section from 16, verse 15, all the way through 17, verse 23. It's a long section, but it's one story. You can tell it's one story because it has all the same characters in it. It's a long story. I'll read it all and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before making a couple of observations. So this begins 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord... And this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose twelve thousand men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace." And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Then Hushai came to Absalom. Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude. 
and you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. And after they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Word of the Lord from Second Samuel 16 and 17. The story here picks up with Absalom coming to Jerusalem as David has just fled. And he comes with Ahithophel, whom we first met a few chapters back. Ahithophel was one of the counselors of David, that is, an advisor, one who gave counsel advice. And as verse 23 of chapter 16 tells us, Ahithophel was good. He was smart, wise, so he knew things and knew how to use them, insightful, analytical, filled with understanding. It says that to hear him speak was as if it was the word of the Lord, not not because it was righteous, but because it was right. What Ahithophel said, everybody, Absalom and David included, says, said, yep, That's what we should do. That's right. He's with Absalom, and that's why David, knowing his effectiveness, was so alarmed when he heard about him back in chapter 15, and he instinctively prayed, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And at just that moment, right after he finished praying, he says, Amen, and Hushai shows up, intending to come out with him, to follow him out into his travels in the wilderness. And David says, another counselor. And he sends him back and says, go and foil the counsel of Ahithophel somehow, somewhere. So he arrives in Jerusalem. 
and understandably, Absalom is suspicious. And verses 16 through 20 recount how Hushai deceives him into thinking that he's going to actually be loyal to, he's loyal to the royal throne, whoever sits on it. We know this is filled with double meaning, though, because when he says, long live the king, we know he's loyal to David. He has another king in mind. So all through Hushai's statements, there's, there's double meaning intended. But Absalom doesn't get it, thinks he's loyal, and then sets him aside. He's not present. When he asks Ahithophel, okay, now what should I do? It's kind of interesting that he didn't have step two planned out. Step one, come to Jerusalem. Step two, now what? Ahithophel has an idea, though. You can be sure it's a good one. And he offers up two pieces of counsel, one political, one military. Political counsel, first, what you should do, go have sexual relations with your father's concubines. So that, end of verse 21, this is the goal, so that all possibility of making peace with your father will be eliminated and everybody will know it and everybody will see it. You're a stench in your father's nostrils. He will have nothing to do with you at all. And they, your supporters, know they're not going to be left hanging out to dry as traitors when you make peace. The hands of those who support you will be strengthened. They'll know this is for real. It's working. It's going to go ahead. There's no backing down. I can follow him and, and stand with him. It's a political goal. The concubines, the king's harem, we've talked about this before, they are a possession of the royal household passed down from king to king to king to king. This is a personal, intimate possession. David left them there to guard the house because he's thinking it's unthinkable that Absalom would do anything to them. That's why it's going to be such an offense. It's going to break the relationship forever. Politically very wise. And he pitches a tent in all places, on the same roof that David stood on when he first looked at Bathsheba. Interesting. Unwittingly, Ahithophel's word is like the word of God. Exactly like the word of God. From back in chapter 12, when David was told from the Lord, consequence for you taking a woman that doesn't belong to you is that someone else is going to take women that belong to you. Tenfold, in fact, in front of everybody. What you did in secret will be seen on the rooftops. That's his first piece of advice. And the second part, how to get David, is military. Military advice. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 17. Very brief, very, very succinct here. He recounts his plan for a lightning strike on David. It's quick. It's focused on one man. I'm only going to kill David. I'll bring back everybody to you like a bride comes to her husband at peace and rejoicing. I'm going to do it, the, the pronoun I. Ahithophel wants to lead the charge. He wants to go get him. He's going to do it tonight. It's going to be quick because he knows he's scattered, he's discouraged, he's traveling, he's close still. He's got all these women and children in tow. Now's the time. And everybody hears that and says, the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Verse 4. So why on earth does he summon Hushai? Here's the guy in the land who knows what to do. And when he gives his plan, everybody says, man, that's a really good idea. 
why consult another guy? And why consult another guy whose loyalty is probably still somewhat in question? And if you bring him in, why tell him what the other guy just said? Why just ask him to speak from his own mind rather than say, this is what the other guy said. What do you, what do you think of that? But that's what Absalom does. He calls him in and recounts, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Should we do what he says? If not, what do you think? And Hushai's first words of response would have been shocking because in, in the original language, the first words are not good. Somebody has contradicted the great Ahithophel. Not good. This time. Very carefully says, we all know Ahithophel is usually right, but everybody can make a mistake. Not good this time. And what Hushai goes on to lay out is lengthy. I mean, if you just look at it, it takes up a whole lot more space than what Ahithophel said because it's, it's obfuscation. Many words to cloud the issue. It's very intelligent. It uses a combination of reason, of, of emotion, fear. He appeals to vanity. So this, this plan that Ahithophel is given, it's so good that it's bad because it's the best plan. So David's going to be ready for that one. Come on. We all know David is a great warrior. He's not going to be able to be found. You're going to go out and find him. That's nice, nice to say. He's going to be hiding in some cave somewhere or another. You're not going to find him. But what you will find is the best warriors in the land ambushing you on their own ground. And when that happens, there will be first some deaths among those who follow Absalom, and rumor will spread of slaughter. And everybody's already afraid these guys, David and all the men who back him, are the best fighters in the land. You're going to lose the whole thing in the first battle. So what we should do, he throws himself in there, we should do is we, you, O great king, should gather a land from one, an army from one end of the land to the other, a massive army, so that the first battle cannot be lost. We do not need a lightning strike. We need shock and awe here to light upon them like the dew falls on the ground and kill every single one of them. With you, O Absalom, at our head. That's brilliant. It's wrong. Verse 14 tells us that the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel's plan was the right one. That one would have worked. But Hushai's plan... Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. So they turn and follow it. Although Ahithophel, though Hushai doesn't know it, it's probably dismissed as they deliberate. Because in verse 15, he tells the messengers both plans. He says, go tell David, here's what I said, here's what Ahithophel said, you better run. I don't know which one they're going to follow. So the messengers are running to tell David what they still think is an important message to, to communicate to him. And if they had been captured and brought back, it's likely that the whole plan would have been uncovered. They're spotted on the way. And wouldn't you know, they, they find a friendly family that they can hide out in and a well they can hide in, and they are not discovered. They get through to David. David flees away. And Ahithophel... Everwise sees the writing on the wall, 
It's the most reasonable explanation for why he kills himself. It's not that he's pouting, that he didn't get his way. Most likely, he sees Absalom's done, David's going to win, and I'm a dead man. Painfully so, most likely, being that I'm a traitor, so I will take matters into my own hands and put an end to this. That's Ahithophel. That's the passage. An interesting passage. So many twists and turns, and a man with counsel that is so dangerous and effective, at the end he's just gone, removed. What are we to make of all this? I'm going to develop two points here. Both of them circle around, as I've already said, the idea that we face all kinds of opposition here and that all the opposition we face is beneath one, is beneath the Lord. So I'm going to talk about that and then why. What is the Lord doing as he reigns? First thing, though, here's the first observation. I'll express it like this. Opposition to the kingdom may be wise and strong, but the Lord reigns over it all. Opposition to the kingdom of God may be wise and strong, powerful, frighteningly dangerous. It often is some collection of all of those things, the opposition that faces the kingdom. But in fact, the Lord reigns over all of it, often quietly and unobserved, but really and truly so. Two different threats, two different types of threats arise in this passage. The the main one, Absalom's counselor, Ahithophel, but then also the subsidiary one of, of Absalom's soldiers hunting down the messengers. And I'm using the word opposition to cover both of them. But the main issue here is is about Ahithophel and counsel. That's where the passage begins. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. And that's where the passage ends. Two references in verses 21 and uh, 23. Again, Ahithophel and his counsel. That's the main problem in the passage. So I'm using the word opposition. And as you're thinking this through, you can apply what's said here to all kinds of trouble that you face. But in particular... If you want to put a fine point on it, the type of opposition here is people plotting and thinking to attack. Not just physically, but scheming and organizing and gathering together power against you. That's what we see with Ahithophel. Obviously, the first one with the messengers There are people hunting them down. They have to hide. Their lives are threatened. I'm focusing on the council here. He is thinking and plotting and advising against the Lord and against his anointed politically and militarily. It's effective. If he were to have free reign to do what he wants, David is in trouble. Opposition to David, opposition to God's kingdom. It's wise and strong and threatening and dangerous.
we have to like stop for a second and sit in that. It might it might seem odd to us that David's the moment of David's fear in chapter 15 is when he hears of Ahithophel. Not when he hears of Absalom rising up against him, and not when he hears of, of the hundreds of people from Jerusalem that were evidently come to his side, and not when he hears that he's marching on Jerusalem. He's got to react. He's got to deal with that. But the moment when he says, Oh, God, help. Instinctively, rise up. Oh, God, help. Ahithophel is at Absalom's side. That's trouble. This is a frightening situation for David. A very real threat. The kingdom is is hanging here. Politically, the enemies are aligned. Militarily, he's about to be killed. That night, it would work. If they chase him down, they'll catch him that night. It's a very near thing. Closer than David ever was with Saul. That's saying something. And yet... And the reason we've got to stop there, before I move on, we've got to stop there and think about this, because we, we people living today, you will find yourself in situations that are dangerous. I, I don't mean car accident dangerous. I mean spiritually dangerous to you. Whether it be big picture, like big picture national, whether you are, as some of us know, friends here who are in the congregation meets in the afternoon from Sudan, where at the national level, at the political level, there are governments plotting ways to kill them all. To deprive them of resources, to, to take away water and housing, to actually... Government planning, how do we wipe these people out? That's what the church faces in Pakistan. Christians in Egypt, in China. Just, just think, the big level there, the kingdom faces real dangerous opposition, spiritual danger. And then if you move it down a little bit, sometimes we can look in, in our land and we can see laws passed, the, the flow of the cultural milieu, the the mindset, the attitude, it's moving away. We can feel it. Moving away from a God-centered perspective and towards a, an ever-increasingly secular perspective. There's real threat there. It's not going to be changed. It's, it's not going to be like, oh, what's going to happen here? No, it, there's danger. It's moving And then if you would drop it down another level to you personally, you face, you yourself face threat. You're all by yourself in the den with the computer. And something pops up. And it's not just incidental and accidental. It's not an, an ad for something you're not interested in. What do you know? It's just the thing you like and are drawn by. Or you see it in the mall, hear it on the radio. There's opposition to you, and it's dangerous. I don't know, I, I don't know every person here, I don't even know how you all work, but 
Somebody does. Some king knows how you work and hates you and is opposed to you very cleverly, very effectively, very wisely, more than Ahithophel ever was against David. He plots your destruction. You personally, the church in this land, the kingdom worldwide, he's about something and he's really good at it. So sit in that for a second and realize you you do not walk through a field of flowers. And even when you do, that also is a battlefield. You face an enemy. A very wise counselor plots your destruction, plots the destruction of the kingdom at large. So David is in an extremely serious situation, and so are you. And the opposition to the kingdom is wise and strong. That's where we live. And if that was the end of it, that would be trouble. Do you realize? That isn't the end of it. Because in each situation we see here in this passage, the Lord shows that he reigns over it all. Let me be clear what I mean by the word reign. The Lord reigns. He is in command, in control, to get done what he wants done. That's a very simple definition. The Lord is in command, in control, to get done what he wants done. I want to emphasize two different pieces of that sentence to make two different points. So I'll say it first. He's in command and control to get done what he wants done. To get done. That is, he reigns to bring about. He accomplishes. He is not reactive and responsive. The reign of God is causal. So think about this, because what I'm saying here is going to reorient how some of us think about the reign of God. The reign of God is causal. He does not, he does not receive lemons and wisely figure out how to make lemonade. That's how many of us kind of, everybody affirms that God's sovereign, God reigns, God's in control. But then how many of us define that is stuff happens, comes to God, and He makes all things good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Which is true, it's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. He does make lemonade and lemons causal. He's not responsive. He's not receiving action independent from him that came from somewhere else. He reigns to get done. Now, as we've seen over and over and over again, this is one of the themes of this book. Put a number on it. 95% of the time, 
98% of the time, 99% of the time, he gets things done providentially. It's a word we've talked about so many times. I, I hope it's very clear to you. God is doing things through the actions of secondary agents, like people and animals and weather. So yes, people are doing things, absolutely. But it is God doing things in people doing. He's getting it done. So here's the second emphasis. He's getting done what he wants done. The will of the Lord is done. Always. Always. Which is a challenge for us sometimes, because a question sometimes arises right there at that point. As soon as something troubling or evil arises, or we see it or read about it in the paper, how can it be that God got that done? Or that he wanted that. Somebody surely did, but that he wanted that. How can that be? It raises a question for us. It's a challenge because we see something evil and wonder, how can God do that? I'm going to say a little more about this in the second point, but briefly right now, our problem is one of perspective. One of perspective. We are not seeing a big enough picture. Easiest example to show this. Does God ever will the murder of an innocent man? Yes. Jesus. Was it evil? Yes. Are men responsible for it? Yes. Did God reign to get done what he wants done? Yes. If we look too small, too narrow, we drop it down to be just looking at one point and not seeing the whole line. We have a, a larger problem, but a different perspective. We can see more going on. We'll never see it all, but a significant piece of our problem here is that we don't see enough. We don't see how God doing this fits into this. Said, I'll say a little more about that later, but right now we're focusing on God reigning over all wise and strong opposition that shows itself in this passage in a couple of ways. First, the messengers are detected and chased, and what do you know, it just happens that there's a friendly house for them to reach just in the nick of time. And it just happens that that house has a well in it that's big enough for them to get into, both of them. And it just happens that that well can be covered by a tarp and grain that just happens to be present. And it didn't just happen that the soldiers came and poked around the grain to see if there was anybody hiding in there, and they poked through and the grain all ran away into a hole. That didn't just happen. Over all of that, it's easy for us to see the reign of God getting done what he wants to get done. That, that's, that's clear. Same thing happens with Ahithophel. Consider the political advice about the concubines. He tells us the goal in verse 22. It strengthened the hand of his enemies, David's enemies. It's good advice and it surely worked. But God reigns over this how? Well, we see it when we remember the rest of the story. 
Now, at this point, I have had a couple of conversations with people over the last several chapters as we look at things like, we go back a little bit, Amnon and Tamar. Or these concubines. Where we see the main story is right here, and off to the side there is some other question of of evil or trouble. What about those concubines? Some some have asked, some have wondered about that. I mean, I, I get the point that this is about David, so we're not even told their names. We don't know anything about them, they're just the concubines. But they're people, you know. This would have been terrible for them. You know? So yeah, there's a story here, but there's also there's another question raised over here. And it's, at some point in the conversation I say, it's not what God told us about. We need to follow the main line of the story. But, but sometimes, and maybe in your mind, there's, there's another question that rises, but, 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 but what about? Surely there would have been another way. Surely some other preferable path could have been chosen. Why did he do it that way? Well, the simple answer is, I don't know. I don't know. All we are given, we human beings, we people are given is the text that says in chapter 12, as I am a God of justice and I look upon sin and I look upon the principle of crime matching the punishment dished out to it, I look upon the principle of reaping and sowing as I've written it into this world and is is in my character. I tell you, David, says the Lord, What you have done in secret with one woman who didn't belong to you, I'm going to do tenfold in public with others. A consequence. Could he have done something else? Why didn't he do something else? I don't know. Carefully, Christian or non-Christian, I want to say... Right there, we have to stop. Because beyond that is to say, I know better. And I hope you hear in the, he should have done a grasping at the throne. I hope you hear that in that attitude, that that expression sometimes. What he should have done was, it was not right for him to do Don't go there. You're not God. You're not God. This is what he did. And we can see in it good, gracious decision from God. It teaches very clearly, does it not? It teaches very clearly. There is consequence for sin, David, and everybody who reads and looks. And consequence for your sin affects not just you, David, but people that are close to you. That is a good lesson to teach. I would have taught a different one. I would have taught a better lesson. Hold on. Right there, you're grasping at the throne. 
He reigns over all of this and decided, David, in chapter 12, this will be consequence that I will bring to you as judge over you. And in chapter 16, Ahithophel, who hates David and hates the Lord and is attempting to overthrow the kingdom with everything in him, unwittingly fulfills the word of the Lord. The comfort for us in this, if we'll see it, is that even the wise and strong opposition, even in what it does, even though what it does may be effective for this, when we step back and see it's like the bigger picture, we see, and that was God's doing too, for gracious good purposes. Even in their successes, they are on a leash submitted to the will of God. If you'd asked Ahithophel, do you want to do what God wants done? He would have said, no. Do you want to be a blessing to the people of God and teach them about the consequences of sin? No. Well, you just were. But we most clearly see God's reign over all good, wise, strong opposition in verse 14, which is the center of the passage. Ahithophel gives counsel about how to hunt down David, but in the end, Absalom and his friends say, we're going to go with Hushai. For, middle of the verse, here's why that happened. For the Lord had ordained. Might have a footnote that says, or commanded. He's in control, command, he's reigning. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. It was good counsel, it was wise and therefore dangerous, but the Lord reigns over it. For the Lord had ordained. That's, that's the word because. This is why. Here's the reason. Because God commanded to defeat the council of Ahithophel. Which is why, way back a couple chapters ago, why David heard that Ahithophel was with Absalom. And why David prayed instinctively in fear. And why Hushai showed up right after that, not before it, right after that. And why David sent him back, and why he persuaded Absalom, and why Absalom was, was convinced. And it's why Absalom summoned him, and why Absalom told him of Ahithophel's plan. And it, it's why Hushai's words were so convincing and so persuasive, so much grabbed Absalom's heart, because God had ordained that it would be so. God reigns over everything. Everything. God is in control to get done what He wants done. Ahithophel's counsel 
defeated. He's reigning as king over all opposition as well as over his own people. He reigns over the opposition too. That's the point here. Often, it is a quiet, subtle reign. Rarely do we get the editorial comment like verse 14 in in our own lives. I've, I've never heard the editorial comment in my life as I live, maybe in Pakistan if I'm if that's my home, maybe as I look out at the laws and the, and the flow of the land here, maybe as I sit and face the challenges, threats in my own den. I, I've never heard the editorial comment, but this will fail because the Lord has ordained otherwise. That doesn't come. It doesn't come for Hushai either. He doesn't know which way it's going to go, and so he keeps acting. Our, our job is, is to keep acting, to keep thinking, and to keep pursuing what we, what we believe to be righteous, what we believe to be God's will, and to give our all to it. That's what Hushai does. Here are the two things that were said, run. That's where we live. We often don't see it. We, we live uncertain about God's reign. And often all that we see is the opposition and the threat and the danger. And Christian, the whole point of, of all of this is to is to bring something before your eyes in in the editorial verse 14 to face up against what you can very clearly see, all of the opposition that is wise and strong and that often makes you cower, fall into unbelief, and maybe even pursue a path of sin so as to appease. That you can see so very clearly. But the truth of the matter is that God reigns over all of that. He reigns over all of it to get done what He wants done. Everything that faces you and every challenge that comes your way, every threat against the kingdom is beneath His control. He sits enthroned in heaven scoffing at the nations as they plot and scheme against his anointed. The reign of God, the sovereign control of God over your life is sweet. It is real. And it is often completely hidden to your eyes. See it. See it and believe it. Opposition of the kingdom is wise and strong, but the Lord reigns all of, over all of it for a purpose, which is the second observation. He's reigning, and he has a purpose in that reigning. That's the second point. So here it is. He reigns to secure his kingdom to the praise of his glory. He reigns to secure his kingdom to the praise of his glory. Be more brief on this point. The first place we're going to start with that is in verse 14. Actually, we'll just stay in verse 14. We've already seen the first half. Absalom preferred Hushai for 
the Lord had ordained to defeat Ahithophel's council. Now continue. It says, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God's not looking at this defeating of Ahithophel as an end in itself. That's for another reason. So that he can bring harm, he can bring calamity upon Absalom. He placed him there, placed Hushai there, he gave Hushai favor, all for the purpose, let's be really clear about this, to kill Absalom. Months and months ago, back in 1 Samuel, we saw that the Lord had determined to put to death the sons of Eli. Same thing here. He's going to kill Absalom. He's not going to eliminate the opposition by making peace, by somehow sending Absalom into exile or something like that. He's going to kill him. He is determined that he's going to destroy him, and towards that end, he overthrows Ahithophel's council. These two men are the biggest threats to the kingdom, and God strikes them down. He's reigning, for what purpose? To secure his kingdom from these opposers. We're told that, that's Extremely clear, hard to miss that, but it took some time. Didn't happen immediately. In the meantime, the concubines are assaulted. This incident with the messengers, their their lives are threatened. And an army is gathered, all the while David and his and his man in the nation is, is in fear and uncertainty. They don't know what's going to happen. We do. They don't. Usually, we're just like them. Living in the dark, feeling vulnerable, being hurt, living through the uncertainty of what's what's God doing in this. I don't know. That's where we most often live. And it is very, very common for us to prefer some other course of action. How can this be what God's doing? How can God want this? This is the question that we raised before. Say something about it later. Here's what I want to say. Obviously, the first thing he's doing is very clearly, very deliberately eliminating this opposition. He's going to strike down Absalom. He's going to secure his kingdom in, in place. But there's something else we need to keep in mind. Think about this. He's chosen to do this in a way that also secures his kingdom somewhere else. The Lord aims at, what does the Lord want to do? He wants to secure his kingdom in Jerusalem, in that place, and in some other place, in here. Think about this. God, in verse 14, says, essentially, to us, the reader, 
I want to let you in on a little secret. Nobody else knows this but you, reader. I want to let you in on a little secret. I'm going to secure my kingdom. I'm going to eliminate all the trouble here. By the end of the passage, one guy is going to be dead and another guy is going to be marching to his death. I'm going to take care of all that, but I'm going to do it in a way that they can't see and won't know about until after it's over. I have not told them what I'm doing, and I have not told them how I'm doing it. I have only told them who I am and have called them to trust me. Now you, reader, you know the whole story. So you can see, you know the whole thing is resolved already because I already decided what's going to happen. They don't know that yet. So you're going to watch them walk through this in uncertainty, fear, and pain, and in faith as my kingdom gets built in them and as their faith, which is of greater worth than gold, grows in the face of now for a little while the hardship they are enduring. You, reader, know that's what I'm doing in their lives. When you read verse 14, that's what you should see. I'm let in on a secret. So now the question, what does that have to do with you? You're not going to get the editorial comment on your life. But the same thing's going on, Christian. God might say to some other one, there's Steve over there. He doesn't know what's going on. I do. I'm going to let you in on a secret. I have ordained thus and so. All the opposition that he faces, I've got it dealt with over here. He doesn't know that yet. She doesn't know that yet. Has no idea what I'm doing or how I'm going to do it. But I have told him, her, who I am. I even gave him verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 17 so that he would know this is how I work. And I'm doing all of that because I'm much more interested. I'm not, Absalom is no big deal. What I'm most interested in is my kingdom coming and being secured in that one, Steve or her heart. That's the most important thing. And I am ordering everything to get that done. Faith, which is of greater worth than gold, and will result in them worshiping and glorying in Christ their Savior when they see it all looking back. That's what I'm most concerned about, securing my kingdom. Absalom, this financial problem, that temptation, no big deal. It is to them right now, but I've got it, really got it. But I'm ordering my getting of it in a way that is going to build faith. The deal. You must see this, Christian, because he is in command of all things, quietly so. On purpose. Because the quietly so, joined to the promise of command, is what builds the kingdom in your heart as you learn to trust him through what you can't see, but he has promised. He will not show you his deliverance on purpose for your good. He will only show you the opposition in all of its might, in all of its raging fury. And he will quietly promise you, I got it, trust me. Where? How? I don't see that. I got it. 
Trust me. He gave you Christ. Will he not along with him give you all things? Trust him. Every threat, every opposition that rises against you personally, against the church, against the the church and the world, the kingdom, he sits in heaven and scoffs at it. Why do the nations bother raging? And to you, in the midst of the raging, in the midst of the fear, and in the suffering, and the hurt, and the pain of it all, he says, I got it. Trust me. And if, if that grows in you, it is a wonderful thing. It is his kingdom flowering inside of you, his reign flourishing, sweetness to you. You do not need deliverance from today's trouble as much as you need sweet, intimate, trusting connection with God. In fact, he blows wind into the sails of the opposition so as to make them seem all the mightier, so as to appear, so as to make his quiet salvation when it comes seem all the more glorious. That's how God works. He told you that in verse 14. He didn't tell them. He told you. But verse 14 is also true of your life, Christian. Trust him. He's in command over all, over all opposition, over every trouble you face. And he is the God of hope. He wants to fill you with peace and joy in believing. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may he cause hope to abound in you. In other words, his kingdom to come into your heart. Let me pray. Father, please, please, embrace the hearts of your children this morning in their various places. Particularly, Lord, some, some in the moment face opposition, face threat to their faith, temptation towards sin, enemies raging against them who seek to destroy them. Those ones, Lord, would you embrace and draw near I ask you, if, if you know it best, would you, would you break your silence and assure them in some, some perceivable way, would you assure them of your nearness and of your command over their lives for their good? And for many of us who at the moment do not face the, the raging opposition and the, the serious threat, We don't know that we face it. Cement, drive drive a a pillar down into the, the riverbed that you would build something, some bridge that we could cross over from fear into faith. Lord, please do a work in your church 
to make us resolute in belief. You've secured for us the kingdom. In this we rejoice, though now if for a little while it is necessary that we suffer trials of various sorts, that we be grieved in those trials. These come that our faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when you reveal Christ to us. So Lord, keep doing that work in your people, please. Build your church under your Son. In his name I pray. Amen.